here we are with the great B.J. Fogg, legendary Stanford professor, <laughs> the great king of tiny habits, both the phenomenon in the book, but also behind it, the Habits Academy, a place where people can come to change if they want to, in tiny, easy ways. I suppose I should just say welcome, first of all. Welcome to the Essentialism Podcast. Thank you, Greg. What an interesting way to get started. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's so good to have you. And, and I want to get <laughs> all the genius, tiny habits stuff, but I want to continue going in an unusual way, perhaps. Let's do it. Given that it is the Essentialism Podcast, I want to start with a question right to the jugular of the issue. Are you game for this? Ready. Go. BJ, tell me something that is really important to you, highly important, essential to you, that you're currently underinvesting in. Underinvesting in? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. First thought. Oh, prioritization. I spend, I have so many efforts to prioritize, and I do that, but I still think I can up my game there. It, it just, it's, that is for me the, you know, I've talked about I prioritize till it hurts and it does hurt, but still there's more to be done. So even though I spend a lot of effort in that and I think I have a really good system, I still think I can up my game there. Well, this is, this is interesting. You, you, you would feel and hope that you'd come to the right place. with Exactly. <laughs> But here, but this is really interesting to me. So there's a few things there to unpack. The first, you said that you already have a system. So can you just tell me what your current system is? Yeah, so it breaks down, you know, what I do kind of for the grander scheme. I'll talk about the, the details because this is what I've worked on a lot. I mean, there's bigger things like, you know, what, what am I really trying to achieve and so on. But on a daily basis, what I do is I have these stickers and these cards. I have a card for every project that matters to me and the stickers are tasks for that project. And so every day I assess, okay, what are the key things that I need to get done today that I want to get done? And I select those cards. For each of the projects, I prioritize the stickers. There's many things I don't have to do that day, so they sink to the bottom. And the ones that are essential get a pink tab to them. And I try to be realistic each day about how much I'm going to be able to get done. And by the end of that process, it's like, okay, here's my game plan for the day. I can forget about everything else. I cannot be stressed. I don't have to be stressed by everything else I'm not doing, but these are the main things I'm doing today. So that's what happens on a more granular level as a daily habit. You do that today? Yes, I did. And so tell me just precisely, I got the whole flow, but then these pink tabs well the way it works is there's these stickers you can buy they're sort of like post-its but they're little smaller and they're plasticky so they hold up and every action item that comes into my inbox or that i think i should be doing this i write it onto a sticker and usually it's yellow so there's four colors usually it's yellow but if something is urgent then it gets either I write it right onto a pink sticker or the pink sticker goes over the yellow one as a signal like, oh, my gosh, this is vital. Somebody, you know, something that's really important to me, this has to happen for that. And then if it's just sort of a priority, there's an orange sticker that kind of says, yeah, this would be nice to do today. 
And then if it's just a regular yellow sticker, then if I get to it, fine, but I don't have to. So the color pink is one I do not like, Greg. <laughs> so it's sort of like, uh, I've got to get rid of all these pinks. And the feeling of knowing that I've prioritized at least my day very well, and I got all the pink ones done, is a very nice feeling. Then it's like, okay, then everything else is extra credit after that. What was one of the pinks today? Oh, it was to get ready for a meeting that I had. So every day, uh, every once a week, we meet about the Tiny Habits five-day program. I have a team that we meet once a week, and we say, how do we make this program better and better and better? And being prepared for that meeting is a priority, because that's where we do both sort of the strategy and also the tactical stuff, like how do we improve it? So it's getting ready for that meeting and showing up to make it efficient. You want to use it well for you, but you want to use it well for them. You want to get the mm-hmm. most out of that meeting. So that's why it's so pink. And of course, it aligns, as you already said, with the bigger objectives that you've already set, the bigger ongoing projects. Okay, so I understand that system. But you said something curious at the beginning of this, which is that this continues to be a pain point. So I'm listening to this and I see the substance to what you're already doing. I can see that you're being thoughtful, you're being deliberate about it, but it's still a pain point. Talk to me about the pain point. Can I tell you, and I I think I know the reason it's painful. It's from three things. Number one, I'm a huge optimist. So I think, oh, I can do that. And I can do that. So I'm a huge optimist. Number two, I'm a nice guy. So people email me and they want this and that from me. And it's like, sure, I can do that. And then number three, and this is going to strike some people as funny, is I'm very creative. And if you are not super creative, you do not know what a disability that is. Creativity has two sides to it. One is great, like, boom, you can change the game. But the other side is all of these things will come to you. And when you combine that with optimism, <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's why it gets so painful to say, nope. Nope, nope, this is a great idea, but I can't do it now, and so on. So that combo adds up to make prioritization quite painful. You're actually describing a sort of perfect storm. Yeah. Because, first of all, there's a curse of capability. Secondly, you signal out to the world, I'm approachable. When you say your door's open, people believe you. Yeah, and I do. That's important to me. So that increases the attraction, the number of things that will come. And and then you added that this, it is optimism. And I'm I'm sure that really is what it is. But it's also the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is a heuristic that says that humans in general underestimate the amount of time it will take to do a thing. Hmm. So that's what I think you mean when you say optimist. You say, well, not only can it be done in general, and so this is a positive going into the world, you know, that things can happen and you can make things better, but also the sense of I can fit this in. Yeah. Yeah, I can do this and, you know, this will be a good thing for the world and it aligns with what I'm all about. Sure. So, yeah, a perfect storm of those things coming together. And, you know, Greg, I've worked for years and years on prioritizing. I think I was raised Mormon. Uh, So I think Steve Covey and Mormons are really about being efficient and productive and helpful and providing service. And so even from a very early age, thinking about what your goals are and how you're going to get there and prioritization is part of that. And so I've just evolved and evolved the way I prioritize. But I've also recognized these 
three things that in one sense are a weakness or a created this challenge. You called it a perfect storm. I think it's a good way to think about it. Well, it's a positive storm, but it doesn't make it less of a storm. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go at one level deeper to this. Now, you identified it as something important, essential. You said that you are underinvesting in it. It's a pain point. Like, why does it matter? Why not just continue to live forever the same? Like, why does it matter to you to improve this even further? Quality of life, just quality of life where I'm not working every day, all day, you know, through the weekends and so on. Quality of life, uh, my partner's getting older, I'm getting older, you know, recognizing our time on this planet is finite and having better friendships uh, that go outside of work. And so, I mean, it's for those reasons, quality of life. I love being in nature. I love playing music and there's creative endeavors I have as well. And all of those get compromised when I'm working all the time. Something that I have experienced myself in life is that quality of life equals quality of relationships. Mm-hmm. They're sort of a simple uh, equation. And what I heard you say Your description is that work just consumes more and more of you. Well, it has. I've had to take steps. But it's an ongoing, it's almost like it's this feeling of it creeps up on you and then you push it back down. And and so that's why it's this ongoing prioritize, prioritize. It's painful because I'm saying no to things where I feel like I could really help people, but uh, I'm trying not to just work constantly. And then it goes against my, you know, being a nice guy. It's like, sure, I could answer this email and give somebody personal help on this. But, oh, that means I won't be hanging out with my partner for the next 20 minutes. Yes. You're saying you're trying to be more aware of the inherent trade-off in every yes. Yes. And I think I've been aware of that for a long time. But there's these tensions. So, you know, the way I think about it from a behavior perspective Uh, In my behavior model, one way to understand motivation is you have conflicting motivations. Part of you wants to do and part of you doesn't. And those are like vectors that push on each other. The stronger the tension, I mean, it's like a tension. So I really want to, but there's really reasons I shouldn't be doing this. And so you've got motivations pushing on each other, like in the book, Tiny Habits, I show this. And it's like, it's pressure. And the stronger those errors are, the more the pressure is at the contact point. And that's what I'm trying to minimize. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here. Well, and what reading into your story and your recent the book coming out, I would imagine that the number of things coming at you now has increased again. Yes, yes. And, and I built in some delegation things that I do where it's like, Bam, you know, I have different email addresses for different things and people take care of those. But even so, it just, you know, keeps mounting. It's bringing people to me that are trying to do good things in the world and my work can help them. And all of that's great. But as you know, there's a real cost, not only for writing a book, but then for being responsive after it's done. I mean, once it's done, it's not done. In some ways, that's when the real work begins. Yes, a book is not an entirely dead thing. It has a life of its own, and you want it to have a life of its own. You want it to make an impact residually out there, a residual goodness that it can bless lives whether you're there or not. That's the upside. That's the reason to do it in the first place. But what 
you're finding, I'm reading into it, but what you're finding is that the life of it comes back to impact you, maybe even in ways that you hadn't fully anticipated. I think you're right. I mean, there was some sense of, I mean, you don't know what will happen, but it's a good problem to have. Imagine if you wrote a book and it was just crickets, like nobody followed up, nobody cared, nobody reached out in appropriate ways. So it's a nice, it's, it's what you want. Let me take you one level deeper for the question we started with. You've said why it matters. You said it was about quality of relationships and quality of life mm-hmm. versus allowing a really good thing, which is your career, your work out there to just consume every part of you. This, yes. this is the why. And let me just go one level deeper. Why does that matter so much? I mean, you gave a clue because you said, well, there's only so much time left. You know, however much time we have left, it's less than we want. <laughs> So there's an urgency to that. Give me just a little more, one level deeper. Well, one is, and you said this earlier, I, for two decades at least, I deeply believe that the quality of our closest relationships is directly connected to our happiness. And it was about 20 years ago, I was speaking at Stanford, kind of denouncing email, saying, hey, people, email is ruining our closest relationships because it's making us accessible Uh, We need to respond to hundreds of strangers. My deep commitment or belief in that quality of the closest relationships matter. The second piece of that is I just really believe that spending time in nature and connecting with nature is really important, at least for my own happiness and health. You're saying that you work hard to keep a balance, to keep this tension at the right level. I think you're also saying that Mm -hmm. the tension has shifted to some extent due to the book's success, due to that increasing the audience, just due to the the momentum that all of that builds. So it's a good problem, but still a problem. And you want to adjust this so that you can continue to have happiness, health, strong relationships, quality of life and still also be able to continue making a contribution professionally. If you can get the tension right, you get to end up with both. If the tension gets off for too long, you might end up losing one or or both. Yeah, or at least feeling like I'm not being as effective in one or the other, yeah. Yes. Let me ask you this now. What does success look like in terms of this adjustment? Not perfect, but progress, where you would say something else to me if I asked you the question. Well, let me describe what success looks like in terms of what I'm doing, what I figured out, and then what's still lacking. What's not good is Saturday comes and I do the same thing. Sunday comes and I do the same thing. And then some part of me goes, damn, BJ, once again, you did not get a weekend. Yeah, you surfed. Yeah, you swam in the ocean again. But you didn't go to Haleakala, you didn't drive to Hana, you didn't take a flight over to the Big Island, which you could have done, but you didn't, you worked, you did a regular work day. So that's the part that it's like, man, really, am I going to never have weekends or even half a day? So sometimes I carve it out, but it hasn't been very reliable because of these other motivators that we talked about. 
In some ways, Greg, I feel like I'm about four to eight hours away from optimizing. If I had four to eight hours on a weekend free, I'd, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't probably have started this interview like we did. You know, that, that is so hard. Yes, I hear you. But maybe we should even reduce that just a little more and say, okay, it's like four hours over the weekend. It's two hours more per day free. If you got that, that back, how would you feel? Would that feel like successful progress for you? It'd be progress, but I really think, well, ideally, I would like to have a three-day weekend. It's like, bam, three-day weekend. Nobody expects me to respond. I'm not feeling pressure. So I'm done end of Thursday, and I pick up Monday. I mean, that's an ideal scenario. You just upped the ante, didn't you? Yeah, I'm ambitious this way. <laughs> and when I tried to make it easier on you, you said, well, really, a full three days is what I'm going. Well, I mean, so that's the aspiration. I'll get there someday. But at this point, especially like you said, with the book and the incomings, yeah, I think if I had four to six hours free on the weekend, I'd be feeling like, yeah, BJ, for right now in this part of your life and your career, boom, you've cleared out enough free time that you're not feeling uh, that you're compromising your relationships with people or with nature. Yes. And it's something I was just rereading the exact definition of is that, you know, uh, diminishing returns mm-hmm. at the point that each unit of input you're putting in, you're still getting something out, but less than you used to get per input. And so then, of course, beyond there, you have negative returns, which is every unit you put in, you get less from than if you didn't put it in at all. You never want to get to that point with work. What I hear from you is that maybe there's a certain place here where it's maybe diminishing returns where you're going, well, I, I think I'm giving extra hours over the weekend, I'm getting something back for that, but I'm losing more than I would if I didn't give that hour to work in terms of the quality of your life. Yeah, and you know how this works. It's kind of a paradox. It's like the time I'm away from work is when I have some of my best ideas about work. And, and I know that. So the tiny habits method is not about discipline or willpower, but there are points in our life when we do need to use willpower and discipline. And one of those might be, no, I really am taking the whole afternoon off on Sunday and just use that moment of discipline to turn off your computer or turn on auto responder and go off and go to the beach or go see beautiful things or just, you know, sit around and read, trusting that even though you are relaxing, that from a, a career impact perspective, that that's the best thing you could be doing. So that is something I have to remind myself and use discipline to do. You know, even putting aside the word of, of discipline for this moment, just there's an assumption here and that feels at play. And this is the idea that one hour more work will equal one hour more productivity. That's the one side. On the other side, there's this other thing that I have definitely experienced in my own life, uh, which is that if you unplug completely, you actually have eureka moments. These actually bigger thoughts yes. that help you to change yep. direction, trajectory. The longest I've been in my sort of adult life away from technology, since smartphones were a thing at least, was about two and a half weeks. And I wasn't online one time at all. No email, no web, no anything. I was with my family. We did vacation. That's great. And my children still talk about that vacation. And we've made it 
time you know together a priority and we've done lots of things and lots of great wow. memories they still talk about that one and there's more than one reason but i think part of it was that i was so unplugged so it was really better for them and for me but professionally too the most important strategic change of direction that i've made in the last you know whatever number of years came from that period as well and it wasn't because i went into it with that intent but space creates you know an opportunity for your mind to do its other kind of process i love that but you're kind of killing me greg saying this my partner a few weeks ago said okay next month you're going to take the entire month off and it's like what he says yeah take the entire month off and it's like yeah i can i mean the fact that i work so hard Nobody's telling me I have to work this hard, but it's like, can I really? So this is what I'm debating right now. Can I really take an entire month off? Now, I think I still would have, you know, my mobile phone and I would text friends and maybe handle some emergencies, but I'm right. This is why you're killing me. I'm right in the middle of deciding whether I'm going to take that leap to do a whole month, which maybe I scale it back to two weeks or maybe I scale back to the three-day weekends. You know, next month I'm taking three-day weekends and see how it goes. Here's my first point of view for you is that, I mean, it's actually, I'm going to quote, quote back your own book to you, right? This uh, <laughs> help people do what they already want to do. Yes. And let me tell you what I think you already want to do. And I know there's tension, but you already want to do a three-day weekend. Yes. You want that. Now, that's what I sense in you because when I tried to make it easier, and excuse this because I'm not at all knocking this, but I tried to make it a little tinier, and your reaction was, no, no, no. I don't want to go for a couple of extra hours on each day, Saturday and Sunday. I want at least four to eight hours. I want to do, I mean, you confessed it. You said, I want three day weekend. That's the dream. And my question to you, is, and there's an assumption in it, a belief I suppose I have, which is why not do that? It seems like you are in a position that you could do a three-day weekend. Absolutely, I could. So it's not external factors. It's me. I love this. Greg, it's like, send me your invoice, dude. You are helping me so much. (laughs) Okay, it's decided. So at least next month, at the very least, it's three-day weekends. And then I'm going to think if I can scale it. Now, the reason, the difference between the two hours and the three-day thing just felt like, you know, my intuition, what my heart was saying is, no, the three-day is so much more refreshing than, yes, the two hours will help you, but three days without even looking at email, bam, think, think that's the game changer. Well, that's exactly right. What two hours per day sounded like to you, if I could put words to it, is not real. It's like, I probably already do two Mm. hours. I mean, I go for periods where I'm not on checking and not connecting. Maybe I have my phone still with me, but I'm not really, Mm -hmm. you know, doing work for that period. So to take a couple of hours, it doesn't feel like a change. And what I think is that you are actually hungry for, feel conviction around, I want to yeah. actually design this life. For heaven's sake, I'm, a, I'm like the habit designer, designing their life. I've thought about this, you know, a little. And, and I, it's, it's key design of my life that 
if I have a three-day weekend and I really unplug, I will at least get to experiment. I like this. Yes. With a balance I need to be able to get this sort of optimal uh, dynamic equilibrium between these two areas of life that I'm trying to yeah. Well, and let, let me put what we're doing into the context, how I think about it in behavior design. So I, I, this is great. You know, in the book, Tiny Habits, you always start with an aspiration or an outcome. Some people would call that a goal and that's fine, but I think goal is ambiguous. So I say you start with an aspiration or outcome and you've got to get clear on that. And that's your starting point. Once you know that, then you go into behavior design mode. What I talk about in my book, what I teach professionals at boot camp. But the aspiration is not part of behavior design. Somebody has to determine that. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. You are clarifying my aspiration. Once I know what it is, then I just use my system and I know how to make it a reality. It's like boom, 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 boom. But getting clear on your aspiration or even setting the aspiration is outside the domain of behavior design. That's the starting point and you get clear on it. You don't set it. So it takes some wisdom or some guidance or somebody who's setting strategy, say, this is our aspiration. Then behavior design begins. So once I'm connected to this, boom, it's a three-day weekend. I know how to design for that. I know how to create habits for that. I know how to make it a reality. Well, first of all, I love the distinction, right? Because really essentialism is about what's the right thing what, mm-hmm. and out of all these options what is the important one or two or few you know what's essential and then you're saying really tiny habits is about the execution yeah it, it's saying well how do you actually do this in a life that's already got lots of moving parts to it and it's already yeah. always complex so you just made a perfect transition because now what i want you to do <laughs> is walk through the specific behavioral adjustments that maybe you're doing automatically in your head already, but lay that out for us for how you go from now this clarity, this decision, this, you know, this clear intent, what will you do now to make execution a reality? Good. And I'll just walk through the steps of behavior design. You know, I walk people through this in the book, Tiny Habits, and there's just a process. It's a system. So once you're clear on the aspiration, I actually draw it in a cloud. It's like, here's this intangible thing that we're designing for. So I'll say, take a three-day weekend every weekend next month. And then I'll go, next step is called magic wanding. And that is a creative mode. And I say, if I could wave a magic wand and get anybody to do anything that would result in me taking a three-day weekend, da-da-da-da-da, who would do what? I can get anybody to do anything. Oh, I'd have myself set up autoresponder. Then I'd just say, great, what else? And you just keep coming up with different behaviors. I'd have my partner do this. I'd have my close colleague, Stephanie, do that. So you come up with a huge range of behaviors, each of which would help you with that aspiration, the three-day weekend. So that's step two. But before you move on to step three, what would you do for step two? Let, let's come up with a few things. Well, some of them would be one. T- so within magic wanding, you can further break it down and say, what would I have people do one time? Well, I would write an email to my closest colleagues and tell them. Boom, I give myself to write the email. I would potentially hire somebody to do some pieces that need to be done over the weekend. Great. That's a one time hire. 
I would uh, sit down with my partner and discuss it. So a one-time discussion. So those are one-time behaviors. Then you can think about what would be the habits or the repeated behaviors. Well, every Thursday night, I'll turn on my autoresponder. Uh, I would, you know, check in on, you know, Monday afternoon with my right-hand person and see what went wrong over the weekend if we need to make adjustments. So then you would explore the kinds of repeated behaviors. And then the third type is what kind of behaviors would I stop doing? And so I would say, okay, if I get anybody to stop doing the behavior, well, I'd have people stop emailing me. Oh, that's not going to happen. And, and so on. So say there's 50 behaviors that come out of that magic wanding. You don't do them all. What you do then is go to the next step and you prioritize those behaviors. And I have a system that I call focus mapping, where you basically prioritize in three dimensions. One, how impactful would it be if this behavior happened? Would it really help me? take these three-day weekends. And it's on a two-dimensional landscape. And so each behavior would be written on, you know, those little stickers I talked about. I also write them on these, on a little sticker. And then I sort to the top the ones that would have lots of impact. That would be very effective. And it's a top-to-bottom dimension. So I would arrange things on the landscape. Then I would shift modes. The second part of focus mapping is to look at the reality of things. And on the right-hand side, you draw an x-axis and you move things toward the right that you can get yourself to do. Over on the right, I write, yes, I can get myself to do this. For example, can I get myself to turn on my autoresponder Thursday evening? Yes, that would go way to the right. Things that you can't get yourself to do, you move to the left. So you're sorting. So these are continuous dimensions, top to bottom, right to left. And then when you're done with the sorting, you look in the upper right-hand corner And those are what I call golden behaviors. They have high impact. By definition, you're highly confident that they'll work and also that you can do them. Yes, but, Greg, what I've learned over the years, and so these are methods I've developed over 20 years, what I've learned is I need to trust my own process, so I know that. So even though I think I know the answer, for important things like this, it's like, no, just you go through the steps, you do the steps, you magic wand, you come up with all these behaviors, and you just, you know, sort top to bottom, don't overthink it, sort side to side. And then you, I really look in the upper right-hand corner, because most of the time, what you thought would be the answer ends up not being the answer. So, but, but in real time, I'll make a guess. So the point, though, here is, I rely on my process to really find the answer. So even though I think I know what it is, I've done it enough that the process will have the answer. So I suspect it would be things like being very clear, signaling that I'm not online and I'm not responding to anything till Monday afternoon. I'm pretty good at going off email and not checking it. I mean, once I go swimming in the ocean for the night, I never get back on email. So that's just extending that behavior. It's probably for sure letting my colleagues know. I'm off the radar for these, you know, don't expect me to be there. You can just send them this, uh, this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Please listen to this most unusual podcast I've ever done with Greg. It's awesome. It's the Essentialism Podcast. <laughs> and then probably on the positive side, uh, create a routine, a habit, a ritual, whatever you want to call it, on Friday morning with my partner. I already have a list of all the fun things to do on Maui. I've already created that. And guess what? They're written on little stickers. 
Um, this case, blue ones. I already have my like, here's fun things to do on Maui. It's probably Friday morning, sit down with my partner and say, great, what should we do this weekend? I mean, you like lists and I can tell that. First answer you gave was about the way that you use lists. But what you're really saying is that this would be part of your design for the three-day weekend to protect it, to keep it from just slipping back to, well, one time it was three days and then it was two and a half days and then it's just pretty much what it was before. You're saying if I can proactively, positively plan it, then it's easier to say no to the other stuff because you've got clearer, more joyful yes already strong in front of you. Yeah. Well, and there's the flip side of that, though, too, is sometimes not having a plan, like just getting in the car and going is awesome. So this happened. My partner thought there was a far market up country. I didn't think so, but I got in the car and said, let's go. We go up and it's not that day. It was the wrong day. And guess what we did? We just drove around all over on all these roads. That was great. So it was sort of great just to wander around and explore. The flip side is to have the space to be spontaneous and explore and not know what you're doing. And that's also very satisfying for me. So maybe I need to make a sticker that says, just get in the car and go. <laughs> I actually think there's something to this. I, for some people listening to this, they'll say, well, I, this is not how I run at all. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be, you know, it works the same for everyone. But I think for some people, having actually decided and scheduling, this is exploration. I am just going to leave. I'm going to go and have an adventure. Mm -hmm. And it's scheduled for you know eight hours of adventure but outside. Something about that can be helpful because at least it creates intention. Instead of a feeling sometimes you have, I know it's happened to me on vacations before, where you have the time but then you start to sort of just use it on anything and it feels, it's a term I just came across recently, uh, like the dark playground where, you know, it's not actually enjoyable and you maybe feel like you're probably something else. And, but if you construct space and you say, look, I am purposefully going to play. I am purposefully going to just have time from this point to this point to see what happens. I think is a reasonable way to go about this, to avoid over-scheduling and over-designing, uh, you know, every minute. Yep, yep. You know, and I, I think that's right on. And I think everyone listening to this has had that experience to some extent, where that unstructured time really has led to some of the most delightful things or, you know, going back to the breakthroughs or the insights or just... For me, back to the nature thing. Sorry, I'm a little obsessed with nature. When I go out, when I'm done with work and head out to the ocean, so it has to be before it gets dark, I don't exactly know where I'm going, but I know I'm walking. So I go out, I fully get in the water, and poof, all the stresses of the day are gone. And I don't know why I think of it as baptism, but it's like fully get in the water. And then I come back and, and I'm good. And I just... Yeah, it's a great, I, I just aspire for everybody to find that thing. And I think nature is a big opportunity that just fully refreshes you, that resets you. There's something in the magic of it, of just being aware of being in the moment, of helping you to, to not just be out there, but to be present out there. I love that. 
BJ, I have a one final important question for you. It's a, it's a perfect Stanford question because everyone, at least who goes to the business school, has to answer the question, what matters most to you and why? And it's a torturous question in a way. I certainly tortured over it when I was writing the essays. Uh, but it's over to you. What matters most to you and why? Wow. It is really hard. Here's what, and I, I, I know the answer. It's not the answer I really want, but I know the answer. And I tell the story in the last chapter of Tiny Habits. So I was having a dream, but I didn't know it was a dream. And I was flying along in a plane and the plane was going to crash. And I knew the plane was going to crash, you know, in the dream. And I fully believed it. And my reaction to what I thought was for sure going to happen was it wasn't fear. It wasn't sorrow. It was deep regret, deep, deep regret that I hadn't yet shared the work in behavior design and tiny habits and behavior change that I felt has been given to me. I'm not active Mormon, but I was raised Mormon. And there's this strong notion that you are given things and much is expected from you. And what you're saying is that you feel that obligation and that sense right now. Still feel it. Now, this was the wake-up call to then write the book. Like, okay, I've got to clear my schedule. I've got to reprioritize projects. I've got to ramp down some research at Stanford so I can get the book done. That was very, very clarifying for me that in that moment, and I woke up and told my partner, I said, oh my gosh, the thing I thought about was, it was regret. I've, I've got to share my work. And I think that's still true today. The, the book is sharing a lot of new stuff that hasn't been shared before in this way. But I still feel this deep obligation to share what I know and what has come to me about both through research and inspiration or however you want to think about it, about how human behavior works and how you can help people be happier and healthier. And that really is, it's yes, sharing that, but it's also me feeling like I've done what I need to do to share it, which are slightly different things. They're related. Yes, it, it is different because one is to do with a general intent and the other is a completion Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did it. I'm finished. I get to bow out. Yeah, and related to that, so when my book became a New York Times bestseller, I was like, the response to that was like, check, I did it. Agent, publisher, I did it, check. Now I get to do what I really want, which is teach my stuff. I don't have to chase these numbers anymore. I don't have to worry about the rankings. Now it's out there. I did what, you know, what people want to do in publishing. And now I get to teach my stuff, which was a surprise, but it was very also refreshing. It's like, okay, now I'm going to go all these Zoom sessions. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I didn't feel like I had people cracking the whip saying, you got to sell books. You got to sell books. And that's great. Because as you know, before the book ships, there's pre-sales, there's all this stuff that was certainly not fun for me to do. But hitting that milestone and then I shifted gears, I'm like, good, it's out there. Now I get to just help people apply it and expand on it. Awesome. You felt some release in that moment because what you really want to be is, is doing the teaching. 
Uh, one thing I wonder about for you is how can you get to the point where the things that you're currently teaching, not just the book, but the most, most recent findings and the new discoveries and the tweaks can get automated to the point that once you're done, right, once you bid farewell to this life, Mm -hmm. the work continues and even expands in your absence. It's a different kind of challenge as a teacher who cares about impact. It's a quite a paradoxical challenge because you've got to take you out of the teaching completely in order to solve the problem. Whereas in so much of teaching is the enjoyment of seeing the light in the eyes, seeing the change, yeah. seeing the impact. And, and to remove <laughs> oneself completely is necessary to be able to create a truly residual teaching. Greg, if I ever go back to therapy, I'm going to ask you to be my therapist. <laughs> you are so, you get it. You, you get the kinds of things I'm facing. And yeah, and I've created a teaching team. These are handpicked people that have done my boot camp and so on. And then I've taught them how to teach some of my stuff. And I hope to expand that. The tiny habits coaches, the people that get certified in my methods and so on. But still, it's there's not a perfect alignment between, you know, what I know and what I could teach and then how that carries on. So you kind of nailed it right there. And coming up with a system for that and something that has broader coverage and can scale even better I don't yet have. This idea of infinitely scalable, or even just scalable, but let's use the word infinitely scalable, is non-trivial, well, vital challenge to solve because even the teach-to-teach model is so limited. You're limited to who you can teach, how effectively they can teach it. If you develop them to the point they know everything you know, which Mm -hmm. inherently it can't be done. But even if it, it could be, then you've got a sort of weird situation where they, they're likely to want to go off and do their own thing. So there's that challenge. So there's all of these factors limiting the idea of just constant scalability. And at least a thought to maybe leave you on with this is, I remember when Steve Jobs was asked, you know, what's your favorite innovation? What are you proudest of? Is it the, the original Mac? Is it the iPod? Is it the iPad, the iPhone? You know, all this. And his answer was Apple. And it was such a good way of articulating how he had been thinking hmm. about innovation. That at some point in the process, and I suspect it wasn't at first, but at some point in the process, he realized mm-hmm. he needed to shift from focusing on products and getting great products. Yes, he, of course, focused on that and wanted to be focused on it, but shifted to how can I create a system, a business that can create and innovate with or without me? And uh, we could question to what extent it's been done, you know, what would have happened if he'd been around and so on. You can never quite make up for somebody like him, but it's still extraordinary to watch the smoothness with which Apple has continued to grow 3x, 4x the size of the company now compared to when Steve was alive, and and on it goes. At least something there feels relevant to the challenge facing you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I decided years ago, and this might have been a bad decision, 
that I didn't want to grow a big company. I didn't want to be the CEO. I knew that wasn't my best role and that I didn't want to manage hardly anybody. So I didn't want to be that like the IDO of behavior change. Um, and so that was a decision I made two decades ago, probably maybe more like 15 years ago. And maybe it's the wrong one, but I don't regret it because I really don't want to, you know, as you and many know, uh, to be a CEO means you're not actually doing at least the work that I think is fun, which is the research and the innovation and the teaching. So the balance I have right now is exactly what I want. You know, half my time at Stanford, research, teaching, half my time outside, innovation, teaching and applying it. And I manage very few people by design, and I like it that way. So it's a hard challenge because I'm not going to grow an Apple or an IDO based on my work. At least that's not what I think. I want to affirm you in that choice that you've made in the trade-off because it's all about knowing who you are and who you aren't, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore which, which strategy for longevity you choose. Mm-hmm. You can do it by building a really big, large institution. And I think that's an interesting path. It has really big downsides to it. So if you simply go large, you're likely to create an institution that doesn't last very long. At least that's what the, the, the evidence seems to be. I mean, in, institutions, corporations are, um, are fragile things just in terms of survival, never mind just going up and down year to year or decade to decade. They just don't last very long. Compare them to, for example, to cities or societies. Uh, these things just come and go. But as you think about trying to crack the code on the same problem, but in a different way, right? You're saying, I, I want to solve this problem still, but not that way. I think we live in a time where just some of the technologies we have available make something plausible that wasn't available even yeah. 20 years ago when you made that decision. And yeah. when I look at what some of the companies are doing with apps, for example, whether it's Thrive Global app or the mm-hmm. 10% Happier app or you know, where people have taken ideas and they're creating platforms around them, technical platforms that are you know, close to infinitely scalable, they don't have mm-hmm. to have a huge footprint of a massive company. Uh, they can still be streamlined businesses. They can still be small giants, to use that term. So they, they have great impact without having a great footprint. I think that there's a way to do it. And, and certainly, at least as a thought experiment, the idea of creating a yeah. BJ Fogg second brain, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you create the brain trust and you start feeding into it. And of course, the book is a big part of having done that. The book can last forever. But keeping on on that process where each day you're thinking about how do I invest in something that would exist without me versus today I will do something that directly has an impact but would end if I wasn't able to do it again tomorrow. I think it's the right shift of, of focus Uh, in order to achieve what you're trying to achieve. I love that advice. And when this podcast ships, I'm going to come back and listen to that again. (laughs) That is so smart. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a real, real pleasure, BJ. And I am so glad for the time. I'm so glad you were game to (gasps) 
do this differently. Yeah, not just it's... to do the repeated, which you would have been, I'm sure, excellent, but repeated <laughs> interview, you know, going through the, the best play uh, list, greatest yeah. uh, hits. We've got to... Well, thank you. Yeah, this is, you know, I'm always up for doing new crazy stuff. And this has been one of the craziest podcasts I've ever done. Thank you. And thank you for giving me clarity. And guess what's coming to my life is three-day weekends for a month, for sure. And we'll see where it goes from there. So thank you, Greg. This has been a blast. Thank you, BJ. Thank you sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a comment to help other people find us. If you want to join our community, follow us on social media at Gregory McEwen and at Essentialism Podcast. Again, I really am genuinely grateful to you for listening. Uh, remember, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. <laughs>